Kirk Cousins is the quarterback for the Minnesota Vikings. He's also a pastor's kid. And he made a decision for Christ when he was a, a young elementary age student. But he was challenged in high school with a Bible teacher who asked the question out of, based out of 1 John 2, 6, where it says basically those who say that they follow Jesus must walk as he did. They asked the question, are you an imposter or are you for real as a follower of Jesus? Are you an imposter or are you for real in your walk with Jesus? He said those words changed his life. He said he decided that no matter what circumstance he found himself in or what it cost him, he was going to be sold out to Jesus for his life. There's another example of what we have in the scripture, one who was sold out and lived a life worthy of the gospel, and that was the Apostle Paul. So if you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse number 19. We care about living worthy of the gospel. We see the example that Paul sets for us in Philippians chapter 1 in verse number 19. He says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. He's talking about being in prison. Through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. With that, let's pray. God, would you uh, speak to us today and help us to live a life worthy of the gospel in your name. Amen. Paul wanted to go to Rome as a preacher. He ended up instead getting arrested and going to Rome after he appealed to Caesar as a prisoner. For two plus years, Paul is in Rome and he is under house arrest. He has some freedom in that he's not in a jail cell, but for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every week for every year that he's there, he is chained to a Roman soldier. Now, I don't know about you, but every day, every moment chained to a Roman soldier doesn't really sound like a great life. I mean, when you go to bed at night, you're chained. When you eat dinner, eat lunch, you're chained. Even when you have to go use the restroom, I don't know if they unchained it, but the, 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 the law at that time was that when you were under arrest and appealed to Caesar, you were chained to a Roman soldier. Now, Paul, as he looks at his life, he, he tells us in verses 12 through 18 that we looked at last week, that while I've been in jail, this has furthered the gospel. Because now people in the Roman palace guard have heard about Jesus and it is beginning to change their life. And people outside of the prison who've heard about me sharing Jesus have become more bold in their faith. And so God is at work in this. But there's still this nagging desire that Paul has that we find in these verses 19 through 24 that Paul thinks, you know, 
it would be a lot easier if I would just go depart and be with Jesus in heaven forever. He says, I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. I know I need to be here, but I know I want to be in heaven forever. Paul, as he wrestles with this circumstance and situation, says, as he's weighing this out, where should I be? I really want to go to heaven, but God, where do you want me? I want to be in heaven, but God, do you want me here? Or would you have me there? And then, Lord, if you have me here, what do you have for me to do? Maybe the question for us today would be this. If you died, do you know that you'd go to heaven? If you died, do you know that you'd go to heaven? Do you have a longing to go to heaven? But that final question for us is really what we're going to explore this morning is, is if God hasn't taken me to heaven yet, does he have a reason for me to be here on the earth? Does God have a deeper purpose in my life that he would have me here for such a time as this? We think about the sanctity of life and we think about babies, but listen, there's sanctity and and a special purpose that God has for your life here today. That you may have been a surprise to your mama, but you weren't an accident to God. And God really does have a plan and a purpose for your life. So what are you going to do to make a difference? I, I think that, that as we look at this passage, there's two great challenges for us as we look at the life of Paul and then listen to the challenge of Paul. I, I think first our, our challenge is this, that we need to follow or, or fix our eyes on worthy examples or worthy models that Paul, as he looks at these first 26 verses in the book of, of Philippians, really shares kind of an autobiographical sketch of what is going on. And he gives the challenge to say, man, look at my life and, and you can follow me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 1, Paul says that same thing. He says this, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Those are tall orders. If I would have you look at my life, I would say, yeah, you can imitate me a good chunk of the time or pretty much this time. But boy, there are times that you, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And then over in Philippians chapter four and verse number nine, he says, hey, the things that you've learned or heard or received or seen in me, these things you do and the God of peace will be with you. So he's saying, look, you need to follow a worthy model. And Paul is setting himself up as that model. So if I'm going to live a life that's worthy of the gospel and I'm going to follow Paul's examples, what do I need to do? What do I need to do and how do I need to live? Well, I think he shows us how to live. That I'm to live with a magnified Christ attitude that I'm to live with a magnified Christ type of attitude. Now, Paul begins in verse number 19 and says, look, I know what's happened to me is going to ultimately turn out for my deliverance and I appreciate your prayers, but I want you to know this, that whether I live or whether I die, I have one goal. And that goal is for Jesus Christ to be magnified in my life. Notice what he says in verse number 20. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, so always, now also, 
Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Follow my example and live with a magnify Christ kind of attitude. Paul learned something. This is what he learned. It's not about me. It's not about me. Paul says, whether I live or die, whether I'm in prison or free, it's just not about me. It's about my life magnifying Christ. He goes further, I think, and tells us and gives the example in the church. The church is not about me. Paul says life is not about me. The church is not about me. And God's kingdom is not about me. I'm not the center. I do not sit on the throne and proclaim here. Instead, whatever situation and circumstance I find myself in, I have one job, and that is to magnify Christ. How do you magnify Christ? I I like to think that we need to have a telescope-type ministry, a telescope-type life. As you look through a telescope, you don't make a planet or a star any bigger. Instead, you're just able to see the beauty and the greatness and the grandeur of it. We can't make Jesus any bigger. He's already been given a name that's above every name and that one day every knee will bow to him. But we can live a life so that other people can see how wonderful and beautiful and grand, and great, and loving, and kind he is. So Paul says, look, whether I live, whether I die, whether I'm in prison, whether I'm free, no matter what's going on in my life, my goal is to magnify Christ so that if I'm well or if I'm sick, whether I'm working or I'm not working, the challenge for us is that do we live with that kind of mentality and that kind of lifestyle, that my life is about one thing, it's to make Jesus' greatness Evident to others. That's what his heart is. Magnify Christ. He not only says that, but notice then what happens down just a couple, uh, the next verse. He says in verse number 21, Christ, he wants to be magnified in his body by life or death in verse 20. And then he says in 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. An athlete might say, for me to live is sports. A businessman might say, for me to live is sales. For me to live is administration. For me to live is accounting. For me to live is money. A teacher might say, for me to live is to teach. A student might say, for me to live is to learn. Most times students say, for me to live is more like How little do I have to learn for me to live is to pass. You know what I'm saying? It's not like, hey, I I just want to memorize this stuff just for this little bit and then I can just pass it and go on. But the picture is, is what would that be for you? I mean, let's get real personal with this. I mean, let's dig into your heart a little bit and get real personal. And, And what about you? For me to live is, what would fill in your blank? A parent might say, for me to live is my kid's. A grandparent might say, for me to live is skipping my kids now and going straight to my grandkids, you know. Uh, for, for me to, to live is what? What is it? What is that passionate pursuit that you are after in this life? Let me challenge you with this one thought. In a heartbeat, you could lose it all if it's not Christ. 
Paul says, for me to live is Christ. I want to live under the resources of Christ. I have a reason to live for Christ. And my life is not about me. I'm to magnify Christ in everything that I do. I want Jesus to be made known because I'm here. That's what he really senses as his purpose. Live with a magnified Christ attitude. Then Paul also lives with a heavenly longing. Uh, 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 he, He lives with this this heavenly longing that says, man, I really want to go and be with Jesus. He says down uh, a couple verses later in verses 23 and 24, he says, I'm hard-pressed, verse 23, between the two having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better. Paul had a heavenly longing. To him, death was not a tragedy but a door to victory and a door to glory. How do you look at death? What I find is is most people want to go to heaven. Nobody wants to die to get there. But do you have that confident assurance? Paul says, I desire to depart and be with Christ. Do you have that confidence in your life that if, Today was your last day. In just a few moments was your last breath. That that heart that's beating had its last strike. That you'd be in the presence of Jesus. Paul uses the word, it's better for me to depart. That word depart is one he uses in 2 Timothy chapter 4, which is the last letter he writes. And he says to Timothy, the time of my departure is at hand. My departure. Paul didn't look at death as this, this gloomy, doomy uh, tragedy. Instead, he looked as a door of victory. And this is what he says in the word depart. The word depart can be pictured in three different realms. Three different kinds of people use that word depart. First off, sailors used it. It was a, a word that meant to, to loosen up a ship as it's tied onto its dock to depart and go somewhere else. So a sailor would say, it's time to depart. And so he would use that word, let's unloose the moorings, let's untie the ropes, unhitch, and let's move forward on to a new destination. Not only would a sailor sailor use this term, but a soldier would use this term. A soldier, when it was time to strike the camp, pack everything up, break the tent down, load it all back up in the backpack, and move on to a new place. It's time to take down the tent and move on. It's time to depart. A farmer would use this term when he had a team of oxen uh, that were pulling, uh, uh, that were hitched up to pull the plow and, and those, that, that hitch uh, was there used to, to keep that, that plow going straight and they, they could direct the plow. They were hitched up when the farmer would unhitch them. It would be, hey, we're going to depart the, the yoke from the oxen. That, that's the picture of him unhitching. So the picture is, as Paul says, look, just like a sailor is going to take off to a new destination, just like a soldier is going to pack up his camp and go to the next place, just like an animal is getting unhitched of its burden and its weight and the struggle and the sorrow here on earth, I'm going to depart and I'm going to be with Christ. That's the picture The time of my departure is at hand. That's not a scary word. That's not a fearful word to Paul. 
That's not a word that brings this, this sense of tragedy and this gloominess. Instead, it's a picture of victory. The time of my departure, I'm sailing on. As a soldier, I'm moving on. As a, as an animal, I'm being loosed of the sorrows and the chains of the world. That's Paul's attitude. He lives with a heavenly longing. And notice what he says in the text. He says, it's better for me to depart and be with Christ. What does heaven mean to you? What are you looking forward to seeing in heaven? Paul doesn't mention anything about streets of gold, gates of pearl, no sorrow, no trouble. Do you know what Paul's ideal picture of heaven is? I'm with Christ. That's his picture. It's not about all the other stuff. It's not the beauty that John describes in Revelation 20 and 21, or 21 and 22. Instead, it's, I get to be with Christ. So Paul over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 8 says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's not about the stuff. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse number 16, He says that there's going to be a shout, the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ are going to rise first. And then we who are alive and remain are going to be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then he says, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. The picture is, is heaven is the place because Jesus is there. It's not about the stuff. It's not about gold. It's not about pearls and and diamonds and rubies. It's not about the absence of pain or the absence of sickness or the fact that we're going to see all of our friends that have already departed. Some of you have parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles, folks that you love that are in heaven, and we will get to see all of them. But Paul says it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. That's Paul's heart and attitude. See, for me to live as Christ means that I want to magnify Christ in my life. But to depart as gain means that I want to spend eternity with Christ and I'm ready to go today. Some of you, if the Lord would call you home today, you'd think, man, I thought I was going to have a little more time. I would have read my Bible a little bit more. I would have prayed a little longer. And Paul says, no, soak it in, live it now. Get ready for the kingdom. Get ready to meet Jesus. But Paul knows that it's not time for him to go. Notice in verse number 24 with me what he says. He says that, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Paul has a heavenly longing, but he knows God hasn't called him yet. So he's living, listen, with a ministry mindset, a ministry mindset. He says, it's more important and more needful for me to be here with you. But until I go, I'm involving myself in ministry. What does ministry mean for Paul? Well, it means two things. First off, it means the furtherance and fruit in the gospel. 
In verse number 12, notice with me, Paul says back in Philippians chapter 1, he says, the things that have happened to me have happened for the furtherance of the gospel. In other words, him getting arrested in prison, sent to Rome, now is helping people in the Roman palace guard hear about Jesus. It's furthering the message of the gospel. It's furthering so that people who are lost, who are unbelievers, can hear the truth about Jesus, that Jesus can forgive, that Jesus can save, that Jesus can change your life. Some of you maybe have never experienced that before. You've been in church, you've talked about church, you've heard about church, maybe you were dragged to church as a child, but here's the truth. Paul says, this is what I want people to know. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again, and he offers forgiveness and salvation as a free gift. It's not about what you can do. It's not about how many classes you take or if you get baptized or if you go to a class or, or you take the Lord's Supper. It's not about any of that. Paul says the good news is that heaven's a free gift. I want people to hear the good news of the gospel for the furtherance and the fruit. He says in 12, the furtherance of the gospel. Verse 22, he talks about the fruit of the gospel. That's people coming to know Jesus. Then he says, it's more needful for me to be here, not only for the furtherance and the fruit of the gospel, but for the progress and joy of the faith in verse number 25 of believers. Notice Paul knows that he is here now with these believers for their progress and their joy of faith. That's what he says, verse 25, that you rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Back up to verse number 25, sorry. And being confident of this, I, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. It's verse 25. He says, look, it's all about the progress and joy of your faith. Are you moving on? Are you growing in your faith? Last week I challenged you, or a couple weeks ago, I challenged you, are you. Is your faith progressing? What are you reading in your Bible? Do you have a plan? If you don't have a plan, you're not going to progress. I mean, waking up every morning and, you know, playing Russian roulette with my Bible and putting my finger. No, don't do that. There's a plan. Read through the New Testament, one chapter a day. It'll take you just a few days to catch up. Progress in your faith. Progress and joy in your faith. Paul says, I'm here to encourage believers. I want to encourage you to grow in your faith. But not only do I want to encourage you to grow in your faith, I want to encourage you to encourage people to grow in their faith. Are you having a part in that? Who are you helping to grow? You say, buddy, I mean, I'm, I'm just me. I don't really have, really? Who can you just say, hey, man, what are you reading in your Bible? Just poke them a little bit, challenge them. Who can you bring some joy to in your life for Jesus? Live with a ministry mindset. Paul says, I'm here and I'm here for a reason. I'm here for the furtherance of the gospel and to help people progress in your faith. I can think of no better mission statement for your life. I'm here to help people come to know Jesus and help people grow in Jesus. Th that could be a great mission statement. That could be a goal and an aim for your life. I want to encourage and love and share with people in such a way that they will know Jesus and that they'll progress and grow in their faith for Jesus. Is that your aim? For me to live is sports, money, school, education, climb the ladder. For me to live is Christ. 
And I want to magnify him. And though I'm longing for heaven, I'm here. And God has me here for a reason. Don't you find it amazing we call this Sanctity of Life Sunday? If you think your life is really precious, and it is, God has you here. His divine sovereign plan has you here. So listen, don't live a mediocre life. God's given me this precious gift of a life. So now I'm just going to bounce along and live mediocre. I pray that God would well up a fresh passion in us. That we would say not only babies in the womb's lives are precious. And not only little babies in diapers' lives are precious. But your life is precious. And God has a wonderful, awesome, exciting, memorable plan that he wants to use you to impact people for the gospel. And I believe it. Man, if I could walk down and look every one of you in the eye, I would tell you this. God has a plan for your life. He really does. So don't settle for mediocre. Don't settle for half-hearted commitment. Don't settle for lack of passion. Don't settle for just going to work, paying the bills, taxiing your kids. Don't, don't settle for just saying, man, when I get to retire, I'm going to do what I want. God has a plan for your life right now, and I absolutely believe it. And if we would grasp onto that, boy, how our life would look different. How our church would look different. Because we would be people on a mission. So God, may it be. May it happen here. Paul spends the first 26 verses of Philippians 1 in an autobiographical sketch. And then in verses 27 through 30, he then turns the corner and says, Look, this has been my example. I've been in prison, but I've lived for Christ to magnify him. Though I have this heavenly longing, I've lived to minister. And and now this is what I want you to do. So he turns the tide in verses 27 through 30. and He offers a challenge to the church. And as we think about that church, uh, the church at Philippi, it's a challenge for us today. So I want to challenge you not only to follow a worthy model but to accept a worthy challenge and here's how Paul challenges us pick up verse 27 if you have your Bible only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind accept a worthy challenge He says, this is what I want you to do. Live a life that's worthy of the gospel. And I want you to stand fast together in one mind and in one spirit. That ought to be the heartbeat. That ought to be the heart. That's what he says at the end of verse number 27. Stand together. Stand together faithfully. Stand together faithfully with one mind and one spirit. The picture is is that, that we stand together in one spirit. That we have the Holy Spirit because Christ lives in us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. We stand together with the spirit that says, God's spirit lives in me. He lives in my human spirit. And I want to do what God wants me to do. And God's spirit lives in you. And you want to do what God called you to do. And we stand together and we stand for the gospel and we stand to share the good news and we stand with a sense of joy. And we not only stand together in spirit, but we stand together in mind and that we have the same purpose. That purpose is the furtherance of the gospel, progress and joy in people's faith. Stand together faithfully. Then he gives the picture. Not only are you to stand fast, that picture is, man, there's challenges and difficulties. Stand fast. 
But then they are to, to strive together forcefully. He says that as you stand together with one mind and one spirit, he says this. I may hear of you that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. The word strive is an interesting word. In the Greek, it begins with the, the prefix with, soon. It's soon athleo. Soon means with athleo, athletics. What do you do in the world of athletics? If you want to be good, you've got to work at it. Athletics doesn't come easy. Last Monday night, LSU and Clemson were playing, and, and as they were, were facing off and both teams working forcefully together, they each had one purpose. On offense, they were to, to run and, and get yards and to pass and complete passes to get yards so that ultimately they could get touchdowns. They had one mind, one purpose on offense. Our job is to score points accomplished by gaining yards. They had one mind and one heart on defense. Let's sack, let's tackle, let's cause incomplete passes. Let's do that. Let's do that with all of our strength. This is a big game. That's what they did. What team had the most force? Ultimately, LSU had the most force, and they won the game. There's this striving. Most of us actually, as we think about it, can be more passionate about sports, and Paul tells us that we need to take that passion of sports and we ought to transfer that into our spiritual life so that sports gets the background and our passion for Christ is first. For me to live is Christ. We stand together faithfully. We strive together forcefully. Then we suffer together fearlessly. Because the next thing that Paul says is that they have adversaries. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition. But he says in verse 29, For to you it's been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Jesus, but also to suffer for him. He says... Under God's sovereign hand, as you seek to live for Jesus and you go against the culture, you're going to suffer. You have adversaries. Can I tell you, there's people that are against you today. If you want to say yes to Jesus, there are people that are against you today. There are people that want to discourage your walk with Christ today. There are people that, that are used by the enemy. Matter of fact, we have one key adversary. 1 Peter 5, 8 says that we need to be sober and be vigilant. Be awake, be aware. For our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. There is an adversary out there, and that adversary has a cohort of adversaries called demons, and demons can come and indwell or influence people so that they begin to push the tide against the gospel and against the light as we try to share it. And Paul, as he is in prison, is not only experiencing Roman persecution, but spiritual warfare, and it's real. And Paul knows it. And he says, look, as you stand, stand together. Stand, stay, and even if you have to suffer, you suffer together. Last week, if you watched football like I did and watched some of the NFL games, this dude that's six foot nine, over 400 pounds, walks in at halftime while the uh, commentators were speaking. His name is David Baker. He is the president of Pro Football Hall of Fame. And as he walked in, 
with the four commentators that were there. One of them was Bill Cower. He was the coach for the Pittsburgh Steelers for many years. And David Baker walked up to him and shook his hand. And right there, surprising him, and uh, though it was cor- they, they had it worked out with the TV folks, but surprising Bill Cower, he said, I want you to know that you are the next inductee into Pro Football Hall of Fame. It was a neat moment. So I'm watching football the next last Sunday afternoon, just chilling for a little bit. And guess who shows up again with his loud suit, six foot nine, 400 plus pounds? David Baker comes in again. And this time it's Jimmy Johnson. And he tells Jimmy Johnson, Congratulations, you are the next inductee into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Jimmy Johnson was the coach of the Dallas Cowboys for many years. I thought, man. What a great surprise. Jimmy Johnson was so surprised. And if you know him, he's, he's a talkative, seemingly kind of a little arrogant at times guy. But uh, Jimmy Johnson says, I can't even talk. It was an overwhelming moment. Can you picture with me a day when you step into eternity And one comes out with a white robe and nail-pierced hands and says, Welcome. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, this is what I know about God in 1 Corinthians 1.9. He does not lie. He's always faithful. So my question is, will you hear him say those words? Well done, good and faithful servant. You got a model to follow, a challenge to accept. Would you say, yes, Jesus? Yes, Jesus. You say, buddy, I've, I've lived so much of my life and I've gotten off course. Can I tell you, none of us can go back and change history. But your next step of the rest of your life can take place right now as you say, I want to live a life worthy of Jesus. And hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Some of you today need to say, Lord, I just need to resurrender my life It's about you, not about me. I realize someone may have hurt you in a church years ago or something happened in your family or in your life and because of that you've pulled away from the Lord. Listen, can I tell you, the evil one wants you to pull away from the Lord. Your adversary will fill your mind with reasons to pull away from the Lord. Won't you just say, Lord, give me a magnified Christ attitude, not a I want to feel sorry for myself attitude. Let's just get real. Lord, I want to magnify Christ. I want to have a ministry mindset. And, when I, and while I long for heaven, I know one day we'll meet again. With that, let's pray. If I could look every one of you in the eye this morning, I, I would say God's got a plan and a purpose for your life. And maybe it's fear. 
Maybe it's some sin you're holding on to, but something's keeping you from experiencing it. You have an adversary. You say, look, I'm, I don't have anybody to support me in this. I want to tell you today, there's no better day than for you to say, Jesus, forgive me. May my life magnify you. May you give me a ministry mindset. Change my heart. Help me run my race. You say, buddy, you don't know my circumstances, and I don't. I do know Paul's. He's in a Roman prison. I don't think any of us have changed positions with him. And I'm saying he set the example. So will you follow? Jesus, in your powerful and awesome name, may the truth of your word and the power of your spirit God, move in this place. We stand against the adversary who would seek to kill and steal and destroy, who would seek to derail and distract. God, I pray that you would rise up and bring students and men and women to a place where their life is for me to live is Christ. I pray that for my life. For me to live would be Christ. So take this time of invitation and and reflection and move. Amen.